Hello. Hello, Matt. How are you? All right, thanks. Very nice to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on Chaplain Talks. It's all right. I would normally say it's nice to get out of the house, but I'm still in my house, so I can't quite say that. But it's very nice to to be here and to be talking to you about your grandfather. You know, um, I was reading your autobiography uh, yesterday, which I have here. <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> I can I just say, you had me laughing so much at some points. And watching interviews of you as well, it struck me that you're actually just a naturally kind of funny guy, which is very hard to do. Oh, well, that's <laughs> subjective. Not everybody, not everybody <laughs> would agree, but um, fortunately enough people agree because I'm still earning a living, so I'll take it. <laughs> okay. You started off doing stand-up, right, uh, in the early days around London. Um, what sort of material did you do? Was it like jokes and... Yeah, what I did was I always appeared in character, which is why sort of not being in character feels quite unfamiliar to me, yeah. you know, doing the Bake Off, which is which is what made it tempting in a way to just try and see if I could do that. Um, uh, I had this, I'd done lots of youth theatre and I'd been in the National Youth Theatre and the National Youth Music Theatre and I'd sort of met sort of queenie older men that yeah. used to sort of be around. And so I... I you know, came up with this character called Sir Bernard Chumley, um, who was this queenie older actor who would sort of tell anecdotes. And I was 18 years old and far too young, really, to be doing stand-up. But I just got really, really, really lucky. I, 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 I went on a stand-up comedy course run by a man called Ivor Dembina. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then... He gave at the end of the course, it was like a night school and I was only 18. And at the end of the course, he sort of gave us a list of about half a dozen phone numbers and said, these people will give new acts a spot on the stand up circuit. And um, there was a place called the VD Clinic, which was <laughs> short for the Val Dunican Clinic. Okay. And that was uh, in Belsize Park. And I went and started uh, uh, gigging there. And, and um, on Sunday nights. And I'd only been doing it for five weeks. And Bob Mortimer from Reeves and Mortimer was in the audience. And he saw something he liked in my act and came up to me afterwards and said, oh, I'd like to, you know, help you get work and work with you. Yeah. And I was the biggest Reeves and Mortimer fan. I mean, I absolutely adored them. So it was extraordinary. It was, it was I can't, you know, 18 years old. and you know, I'd probably only done about four gigs and my comedy hero amazing. was coming up saying, you know, let's do something. So it was, it was really extraordinary. And I, and I, I wasn't really ready for it, but I mean, it's a, it's, that's a true fairy tale. Um, so I, I did the circuit for about four and a half years uh, and I enjoyed it. It was, it, it's quite quite a dark energy on the comedy circuit i think there's some amazing people but um i think it's a lot of very dysfunctional people mm -hmm. being being very brilliant at what they're good at and at yet a lot of of people were using drugs were getting drunk had failed relationships you know it was a lot of people who'd who'd sort of um 
it was an eclectic bunch on the comedy circuit. Uh, I think it's much more, this was in the early 90s. I think it's a lot more corporate nowadays. It was still, it was still not that long since the alternative comedy circuit had sort of been set up, had, had evolved. So that came in the late 70s in the UK, mm-hmm. early 80s, <clears throat> sort of reaching mainstream culture in the late 80s with um, Saturday Live, you know, hosted by Ben Elton. And uh, and creating stars like Ben Elton and Harry Enfield and people like that, um, and people like Fry and Laurie were emerging out of it. Uh, uh, Rick Mail and a- Adrian yeah, Edwards yeah. and people like that. So I I felt like I was there a little bit after the Gold Rush in I'm a sorry. way <laughs> <Gold> <laughs> um, in 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 the early nineties. But people like Harry Hill and Mark Thomas were coming through. And, uh, you know, and, and, it, and so, so um, that was my sort of apprenticeship, doing the circuit, Amazing. learning from Reeves and Mortimer, working with them. So by the time I was 20, I was already working with, with Vic and Bob. I was already in their shows. Okay. And then Shooting Stars happened when I was 21. So I sort of got famous before I got funny, uh, which I wouldn't advise to everyone. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah, it was a ride. You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was amazing. And then there was the kind of cultural explosion of, of Britpop yes. in, in the mid-90s. And uh, Shooting Stars felt a, a bit of a part of all of that world and that scene. And we'd have a lot of, you know, we'd have, we'd have Jarvis Cocker on Shooting Stars and that, that kind of um, Britpop, uh, you know, Blur, Suede, Oasis. There was yeah, a real yeah, yeah. Uh, pulp, um, Manic Street Preachers. There was an amazing kind of energy coming out of 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 London and Camden and and just in general and around that time, I uh, I I uh, my Saberna character uh, supported Blur on tour uh, in really? 1995, right. which was pretty disastrous. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I stopped doing stand up really in about 1997, shortly after my dad died, and started focusing much more on my work with David Williams. Okay. who I'd started writing with in late 94. But I kind of decided that, you know, to be all over the country doing stand-up and to get home in the early hours of the morning or the following afternoon and then um, just grabbing a couple of hours here or there to write with David probably wasn't going to be enough. Yeah. yeah. That, that if we were going to make a go of it, we needed to really, you know, commit ourselves. So, uh I did that. I stopped smoking weed. Gave that up over twenty years <laughs> okay. ago. Okay. And and then you know, Little Britain was sort of born out of out of that. Amazing. Um, so it was a ride. But but um, my love of Charlie Chaplin, mm. uh, if you want to talk about it, um, I remember as a child watching the shorts that they used to show. Um, kind of alternate with Laurel and Hardy and Harold Lloyd exactly, yeah. on BBC Two at sort of six o'clock in midweek. But uh, it was the um, centenary of your grandfather's birth that um, uh, meant that there was a TV series on ITV called Young Chaplin. Okay. Yeah, which was a dramatisation of his early life. And, and uh, it was made to coincide with the centenary of his birth, okay. which was 1889, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that was about 1989, and I was 15 or 16 years old. 
and uh, I watched that series. I'm surprised you've never have you never seen it. I've never seen it. I've ne- who was it a uh, like a documentary series or no? It was a dramatization. Young Chap. I'm going to write it down. And I'm going to check it out. Young cause... Chaplin. I think it was called Young Chaplin. Okay. Um, and it was and it was a, I think a six part series and and obviously sourced from uh, his autobiography. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the age of sixteen, I got my autobiography out of the school library. Oh, is that right? Not mild, by the way. But mild, by yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By your grandfather. How funny. Which is an interesting title for a book because <laughs> it's, it's implicit when you say autobiography that it's yours. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a great it's a great book. So I mean, Laurel and Hardy, obviously you did stuff with, with the Slapstick Festival. Um mm. talking about Laurel and Hardy, who are also amazing because yeah. uh, Stan Laurel and my grandfather went to uh were in Carno's troop together that's right which is now uh, it was 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 stan laurel your grandfather's understudy or was it the other way around no he was my grandfather's understudy that's right yeah uh, and yeah. uh it's quite funny because actually i was just reading uh before this interview there's a part in the in this book that talks about fred carno kind of didn't like my grandfather that much kind of found him a bit he was very quiet and he thought that he was very up himself and everything and uh Stan Laurel actually wrote, he's like, he's quite the opposite. He's just so shy. Um, just so shy that he doesn't want to talk to anyone. And uh, yeah, which is quite funny considering how much of a clown he was on on screen. <laughs> yeah, but it's often the case. Um, I know lots, I mean, look at Rowan Atkinson. He's very mm. introverted, isn't he? That's right. Um, a man, um, sort of kind of academic, introverted uh can have a bit of a, a stammer at times mm. and yet on stage he's sort of well as close as we get to your grandfather now really isn't he he's oh, he's absolutely. sort of sort of the, the the inheritor of the crown maybe um uh so yeah i mean what you do on stage i mean you do also meet comedians who are really gregarious off stage um <laughs> but uh i mean david williams is is quite quiet off stage, you know, and, mm-hmm. and sort of uh, can be quiet and uh, f- have few words, and then, but when he's on, he's on. Yeah, and yeah. you know, it, it's uh, so I, 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 I've seen that, and I can identify with it as well myself sometimes, <laughs> depending on what mood I'm in. But um, yeah, so I, I, uh, I read uh, my autobiography. And around that time, there was a retrospective of your uh, grandfather's films. Uh, they were on TV a lot. And Channel 4, I think, was okay. doing a, a season. And it was a, it was a Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Modern Times was on. And um, I wasn't sure that I was wholly into the idea of watching a feature-length film without dialogue. I, I don't know that I wanted to do that yeah. at 15 yeah, I can understand but that. It was on and it started and I just thought it, and my jaw dropped. I mean, I just thought it was the most brilliant thing because when when you're a kid and you're sort of watching Charlie Chaplin shorts, silence, you don't really realise the um the that the the kind of cinematic advances that he made. Mm. Not just advances, I mean just things that he created that he's responsible for. You know the language of, you know, close up for romance. 
long shot for comedy. I mean, just, just, just the things that we completely take for granted. And so watching modern times, I was really um, struck by how fresh it felt watching it as a 15 year old that it was, I mean, it helped that it was a cleaned up print. I think it had been remastered. Okay. Um, but uh, it wasn't this grainy flickering sort of uh, um, faded uh, print with, with dirt and dust and, and frames missing <laughs> yeah, yeah. that you would get sometimes when you, when you, when you saw his work, it felt really, um, new and relevant and just from the beginning uh, uh you know him being stuck in 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 the machinery it, it it's it's an amazing film it's still my favorite film of his okay. I mean, in fact it's, that is probably my favorite comedy film still oh, wow. and and it's so funny and and also you know in the, the prison sequence where he sort of has i think he has some cocaine <laughs> you know in that sequence and again I remember being really startled by that because all you think about is when you're a kid and you see Chaplin, it's, it's so it's, it's the sort of height of innocence, isn't mm -hmm, it? Exactly. And sort of quaintness, but actually there was a, there's an edge to it. There's a real edge to it. You know, the edge becomes obviously much more pronounced in work like the great dictator or Monsieur Bedou, but um, it, it was, yeah. And, and then, because I, because it's a sort of debate, really, whether 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 um, whether Modern Times is your grandfather's last silent movie or first talkie, because because of the sound in the film and the sound effects and everything. But it, it is the first talkie because he has that incredible song, exactly, <laughs> which influenced me when I later went on to do a series called uh, Pompey Do in terms of having gibberish speak. Okay. I would think of, of that song. Um, I loved your grandfather's music. His ability to write melodies is great. And of course, people sort of forget, he, don't he they? Everything. Yeah, but yeah. I've sung Smile uh, at the Albert Hall, actually. And, and yeah, and uh, um, it's, a, it's such a beautiful song. All his, all his music is great. Mm. I love his score at, at uh, Limelight as well. Yeah. My funniest moment, the fun, my favourite moment, uh, a Charlie Chaplin moment. The moment that had me just sort of um, choking, genuinely choking with laughter, laughing so much I was sort of a bit worried yeah. that I might pass out, is near the end of um, Limelight where he uh, does that. Well, Limelight isn't that funny a film, is it? I mean, no, it's, it's a melodrama. Exactly. It's, it's mawkish in parts. It's very sentimental. Um, the, you know, uh, it's, it's, it is a tragedy, really. Mm. But there's that sequence uh, near the end when he's performing. Um, and it's the way his legs go up into the trousers. Do you know the sequence yes, I'm I talking know, exactly. about? It's with um, Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton, yeah. yeah. And, and that sequence where his... his so and the look, <laughs> his, his look of puzzlement yeah. and he gets as his legs are doing these... <laughs> yeah. That sequence is, it's so precious and it's so funny. Um, and I've never seen anything like that before or since. Nowadays, you do that with CGI. That's true. You know, you do something with the legs and, but he, no. 
No, you didn't just him. do baggy trousers, basically. Baggy shorts. Just baggy trousers, yeah. <laughs> and also, it looks to me like, oh, I bet he did that on stage 40 years earlier or something. Yeah, or, or, you yeah, know, yeah. It, it was 30 years earlier. It, it has that that sort of um, feeling to it, doesn't it? it yeah. It's real. Well, I mean, it's, it is real vaudeville. Also, in modern times, there's that scene where he's on roller skates. Yeah. On the balcony. And it looks like he's going to go over. I mean, that was all trickery as well for the time. It was sort of unheard of. It was all painted on, a, I think, a pane of glass or something. and Because he was yeah, a very good yeah. skater, but uh, not so good that he wanted to <laughs> try it for real. No, yeah. but I'm sure he did incur injuries in his work. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm sure he would have done uh, at some point. But um, it is it is a really clever film, uh, uh, Modern Times. I mean, it's so... Uh, I it, Like I say, I, I, I think it's... It's definitely my favorite film of his. I think okay. it's for me, it's his best film. Yeah, you know. Do you a, have a favorite? I do. Uh, well, I have. I, it's it's kind of it's really hard to, to ask, but I usually say like top five in no particular order. Something like City Lights. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Monsieur Verdoux. I don't know if you've ever yeah. seen Monsieur Verdoux. I have. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's such a dark kind of film, but it's it's just I don't know. There's something about that humor that I I I love. Um. Gold Rush, all those great dictator modern times, they're sort of mm. right up there, I would say, more so than the others. But uh, the kid also holds a special place for me because yeah. it was 100 years ago, actually, this year that it came out. Wow. And um, just growing up and seeing uh, as a child and watching the kid and stuff, I don't know, just for some reason it sticks in my head. How would you describe silent comedy in general or Chaplin or, or Laurel and Hardy to a younger audience? How would I describe Chapman to a younger audience? Well, I do think there's, there's something... It's interesting because there's something... You can watch a lot of it, and a lot of it still feels resonant and relevant today. Mm. But a lot of it doesn't. And I always think um, that there... You know, the, the character that Charlie plays in his movies of, of The Little Tramp, is, is someone that audiences must have really identified with. Mm. He must have really spoken for, for the audience and they must have, it, it, it must have um, resonated culturally in a way um, that uh, maybe because America was sort of booming in some ways and that this big gap was opening up between those who had and those who didn't. Mm-hmm. And you had obviously the great depression exactly um, sort of coming on. And so he must've, he must've represented a section of the audience. You also, I mean, now it costs you a lot of money to go to the cinema. Mm. I mean, uh, it's expensive. And, and back then, you know, before television, um, the cinema was a much cheaper thing to, to do. Yeah. And, and um, you could, you could spend hours and hours and hours in the cinema. You'd be getting newsreels and you'd be getting serials. And so it was almost like, you'd go to the cinema once or twice a week and you could sit in the cheaper seats and not pay very much. And so there was, I think, um, 
a sort of it was a bit more democratic in terms of uh, uh, it was a bit more it was a bit more available mm-hmm. um, for people. So being in the cinema then was a bit like being on television now, or, or being a YouTube star now. Yes, exactly. Um, rather than nowadays, if you're sort of a film actor, not everybody would necessarily know you, even if you're brilliant. They won't necessarily have seen your work mm-hmm. because the cinema is sort of it's 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 a bit more it's almost more prestigious now, isn't it? Whereas it is. back in those days. No one was expecting art. They were just expecting cheap, warm entertainment. Um, And so the other amazing thing is because the films were made without dialogue, um, because the movies just were silent then. I mean, the the, the technology hadn't yet been invented to to have sound. Mm. Um, It meant that your father's films and everyone's films could travel around the globe exactly yeah. and and so your grandfather was the most famous man in the world how does that feel <laughs> it's pretty crazy you know i grew up in his house so when he moved from america to Veve. in Veve, yeah yeah i grew up in that house until i was like 18 years old so all his stuff was just around. It's it's quite funny because we're in there, in the attic. There's his you know his big uh, cases that he used to take traveling with him with all these stickers on. We used to play on it as kids. Now the house is a museum, by the way. But is it? it all that stuff that we used to like play with as a kid is now all you know locked up and on display. So you don't really realize it as a child. Um, and then as you grow up older you know especially now with the museum i started to really it starts to sink in more and more i think it's possible that he was the most famous man of the 20th century even i mean it's just you could argue that yeah 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 yeah. just in terms of pure recognizability for sure um you know nick rhodes had a great uh he was talking about my autobiography and charlie chaplin's biography there's a a bit where he talks about when he's on, he's on a train, I think from LA to New York and it stops off and he doesn't realize, but there's fans every time he stops, there's people out the window and he doesn't realize it's for him. And he doesn't realize that his films are being distributed everywhere. And next thing you know, he stops and each station, there's more and more people that are all chanting his name. And he just didn't have a clue. You know, it's, it's pretty amazing. I didn't, I mean, in a, in a, in a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction, of that, um, I didn't realise that uh, uh, Little Britain was on. It was on in 142 countries. Yeah, and and um, but I, I, you know, when you're told it's on in every country, you don't assume that it's a thing in every country. Yeah, and we went to Australia, and it was really big there. But I went on a holiday to South Africa once, and it was huge there. Really. I couldn't believe it. Like no one had ever told me. Certainly, my bank manager had never told me. Yeah. But um, <laughs> it was it was uh, it was huge out there. Yeah, it's really weird to go. It's really weird to go to a, a country in a different part of the world that you've never been to before, and for people to just know you. There. Yeah, <laughs> it's really weird. You I, know, I can imagine. I can really mm. imagine. You know, what's different about my grandfather's films to now is even the character. He plays the same character in all of his films. It's just that the setting's different, um, which in some ways I guess is similar to what you did with Little Britain. You had all these familiar 
characters and you just put them in different scenarios. Yeah. Nowadays, um, in films, you know, everyone tends to play just lots of different characters and stuff. So I think that's why people identified with him so so much as well. Yeah, interesting though, isn't it? With with his comic brain and mind, that it wasn't really until The Great Dictator that he sort of, I think that, is that the first film where he doesn't just play the little trap? Yes. So that's the yeah. next one after Modern so, Times. Right, which is, which is, it's interesting, isn't it? That he didn't think, actually, I'm going to, do a film where I play five different characters. Because obviously he would have been extraordinary mm. playing, you know, the the posh, rich, old fool or or, or a child, yeah. you know, or, or, or a female characters. Um, he would have been able to, to knock them off. Uh, and I wonder whether those conversations, whether that was even ever talked about or, or, whether, the, or whether the little tramp was just so iconic he just thought well this is what people want to see this is what i'll do yeah i i think it's more from what i understand i think it's probably more that the talkies movies or had already come out they've been out since uh the 30s 29 yeah, i think exactly so uh, City Lights came out while talkies were already out and everyone thought it would fail and he refused to give the, he didn't want to give the tramp a voice was his reasoning. So I think as the years went on, he probably realized that he's going to have to start talking and it was just probably best to retire the character. Then yeah. Yeah. It may, it, I mean, it made, it made sense because I think if, if it would have become novelty, if in the sort of late forties, early fifties, he's doing the tramp you know you, you can sort of get one shot at it couldn't you You'd go okay <laughs> this is this is Chaplin's final silent move you know you could do that mm -hmm. you can do that once as a kind of event but I think um yeah because you don't you don't want to be the biggest and then just become the 40th biggest it's like you don't want to do that <laughs> just because you, you know audiences are less keen I mean it is it is it's hard isn't it when you watch the very final Laurel and Hardy films like Atoll K and it's hard when you you know to see the decline so mm -hmm. I think I think he was really smart to say okay people want talking pictures now so I'll give them talking pictures but I'm going to do something else it's also really interesting because he, he could have made much easier films to watch and much more accessible films but definitely you know the artist and the sort of man of culture came out that that the, the films he made were were not as mainstream they sort of in some ways you look at like king in new york countess in hong kong they're almost like there's sort of independent movie vibe about them don't they yeah no it's true i although i mean i think they were made after he was you know the whole america thing <laughs> well yeah. Countess of hong yeah. kong was his last film but uh, king of new york was that, that kind of you could very much tell that it, he was telling his own story almost. <laughs> yeah, but they're still, they're still, they're not knockabout comedies. No, no, it's true. He, he seems you know, to get he's quite not, political. He's not trying to do, he's not trying to do Abbott and Costello or the Marx Brothers or any of that. I mean, yeah. he's, he's sort of saying to himself, well, I, I, you know, I've done all of that and now I'm just, I mean, he was, it felt like he was making films for himself, you yeah. know, which is nothing, nothing wrong about that, but, even when you read, like, I was reading about The Freak, which is the, obviously the film yes. he didn't get to make, and you just think, well, that that's a really that's a really artistic 
film, isn't it? That's not a big, huge mainstream movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And what's funny though is that because even in his early films, stuff if you watch the the immigrant and stuff, he kicks a uh, an immigrant officer up the backside, you know. And for that yes. time, it was it was so it was so shocking that they didn't want to put it on screen almost. And uh, you know, I think that's like goes back to people just identifying with the, with the character. So there was always some sort of like political thing happening in most of his films just as they went on suddenly he was wasn't as afraid to kind of share what he thought yeah bold i mean i mean the great dictator is such a bold <laughs> film isn't it and uh, such a risky film to make because it's a really big idea and it's a, it's a grand yeah you know portentous thing to do and and it's like he knew what was going on before the rest of the world did well that's the thing he i mean he spoke out against hitler before anyone was at war with him really um it wasn't until he heard that they invaded Poland that he really went for it. For and him. it's interesting, and it, it does it lays down a marker about about you know what the role is of a comedian, you know what you know because because uh, you know if you're a big comedian, maybe you should take on big targets. I mean, Sasha Baron Cohen, with, particularly with the with the latest, the recent Borat movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, takes on Trump. It does. Yeah, it, uh, and it's great. It's great. And that feels like, you know, the modern incarnation of the great dictator in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mind you, though, I mean, you guys with Little Britain were pretty out there for its time as well. I, w- I would say it was hilarious. I I, I mean, don't, I absolutely loved every single part of it. Um, but and maybe, do you not think that's why people also related to that show? Yeah, it's interesting because Little Britain was... was um, you 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 imagine over the years that people get more relaxed about stuff as time goes by, so that Little Britain was shocking, but there are things, you know, when we made Little Britain fifteen years ago, nearly twenty years ago, there were things at that time that were twenty years old that had been considered shocking in their day that now felt quite tame. Yeah. Weirdly, Little Britain was considered shocking in its day, and 20 years later is now considered more shocking <laughs> than it was when we made it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's a future we couldn't have predicted. No. Um, but with Little Britain, we, yeah, I mean, we, we it, Little Britain was, was a bit of a case of sort of, throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks, you know. <laughs> Let's just play as many characters as we can, all different shapes and yeah, sizes yeah, yeah. and ages and ethnicities and genders and physical types, everything. And let's just classes and let's just see what works, you know. I think you'd approach it very differently now. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the world is a different place. It was Little Britain was made in a, in a, in a, in a Britain that, you know, in in before Boris Johnson, uh, I mean, Little Britain was made when there was a when there was a Labour government. You know, it was before the Tories came in. When when there was a you know, there's been a, a heightened sense of class division. I think since the Conservatives came back in, Little Britain was was before um, Brexit. Mm. It was before Grenfell. It was before Me Too. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was before. 
the pandemic. It was before Trump. It was before Johnson and Rees Mogg. It was before Nigel Farage and Tommy Robinson. It was it was it was a vet before Katie Hopkins, before <laughs> yeah. before YouTube, yeah. Yeah, yeah, before Twitter, exactly, before Instagram and TikTok. So it, it's it's a very different time when that show was made. Very different. Um, it was a. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a, just a, 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 a different world, you know, before, before, well, before everything now. Yeah, 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 of course. And you know, but but in its in its time, it was, you know, it was the most. Just I'm 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 not saying it was good or bad, but it was the you know the most popular show for a few years in terms of comedy and absolutely, uh, and and we had never expected that. You know, we didn't, we didn't, we, we thought we would be very lucky to get a series on BBC Two <laughs> that would run for a series or two and would be like, you know, like all the sort of sketch shows that had gone before us. It would have a few fans, that was it. And and if we were lucky, it would have a character that people really liked because that's what you hoped mm-hmm. for from a sketch show that you did a few sketches and there would, you, you know, it, you, you know, Harry Enfield had loads of money in his show and, you know, uh, I don't think you want to do that. And and he had sort of two or three and, you you know, or, or maybe probably had more. He had the slobs, Wayne and Wayne Etter. And um, in fact, he had, he had a lot of characters, but we didn't, our expectations, our hopes were, were modest, you know, and we'd been working together since, since autumn of 1994. And, you know, we didn't get Little Britain on TV for, you know, for another nine years. So, so it, it it's we felt like we'd been slogging away, really mm-hmm. doing other stuff on TV, and but mainly on sort of cable and and BBC uh, Choice and UK Play and these other channels. So um, for us, Little Britain was an explosion. You know, it's like people do a great first album when they've been a band already for a decade, and and then they do that that album, you yes. know, because <laughs> that's all your best ideas and then. And, the challenge is doing the second, third, fourth album. With us, with Little Britain, we sort of, um, it was like we turned the um, colour up and the brightness up and the contrast up on, on series two, three, two and three. And, and it became more, became a more aggressive piece of television and, and more provocative. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we had Bitty and <laughs> Bubbles yeah. And the women, you know, the woman who vomited and yeah. it became it, it, it became cruder as it went on. Um, uh, and some people really liked that and some people didn't. Critically, uh, the first series was really well received. After that, it was it was it was really lambasted by critics. Oh, is that right? Um, in That's terms right. of yeah, in terms of audiences, um, the audiences grew and grew and grew and, the, you know, so the later series had more viewers than the earlier series. So, well, you know, that's it, 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 it. You know, it went from being a sort of underdog show that you know had its little fan base, and then the critics went in one direction and the show went in another. But, but its sort of commercial success. That in fact, in fact, the more the show was criticised, the bigger it got. Is, yeah. It was the truth of it. Um, and then there would be stories every day for about 18 months. There was a story every day in the newspapers about Little Britain. <laughs> and people would sell their papers by writing why I hate Little Britain. Yeah, of course. You know, as the column. And I just, I was, I was sort of like, oh my God. Oh my God. Talk about crashing and burning. 
but no, it just no. The show just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. You know, the other thing is, <clears throat> it's about being in the right place at the right time. So, of course, two things happen. Two things happen with Little Britain to make it big, right? One thing that happened with Little Britain was that um, the office had been huge and was quite quite brilliant. And when something like that happens, everybody tries to. Everybody goes, ah. Oh, that's what audiences want. They want that. And everybody pitches shows which are their version of The Office. Everybody says, oh, it's a really naturalistic fly on the wall. It's this, right? Every broadcaster looks for those shows. Every production company, every lots of comedians and writers go, oh, okay, I, I, I can do that. It's sort of, oh, yeah, I can do that. And they all try and do it. And nobody, and nobody does. But it's almost like everybody was looking that way. Yeah, at the yeah. office and trying to chase the office that way and we just came in going Ta-da! you know yeah, yeah, i'm yeah. a lady i'm the only gay in the village you know <laughs> hello fat fighters just doing really <clears throat> shameless bold broad comedy yeah. you know in the vein of dick emery and and those 70s shows you know really um uh yeah, really shameless, not embarrassed to be wearing the silliest costumes yeah, yeah, we yeah. could. And so there was not, we were never tried to be cool. There was no vanity in what we did. We just were, we're just, we're just going to come along and, and be silly. So that was one thing, which was that everybody was, um, nobody was trying to do what, what we were doing at that time. Yeah, yeah, After yeah. Little Britain, there was a spate of sketch shows yeah. uh, um, commissioned, uh, because everyone went, oh, okay, that we now Funny. want this. So, I mean, that's what happens, you know. And then, um, that, so that was one thing. And then the other thing that really, really worked for us in our favour was that the show was a co-commission between BBC Two and BBC Three, the first mm-hmm. series. And we were disappointed because we just thought, oh, can't we just be on BBC Two? Like, oh, why do we have to be on this cable channel first? We didn't really, we didn't really see any... We thought it meant we thought it it, it sort of um, infantilized us in a way. It was like we were, it was like we were sort of um, junior, you know, you know. So so in our minds, the League of Gentlemen and Ricky Gervais and all these other shows, they got their BBC Two slots, but we had to be on BBC Three first, mm-hmm. right? But what we didn't realize was that that was the making of us, okay. because people watched BBC Three with lower expectations it felt like a club <laughs> okay so you know yeah, it yeah. felt like something you could just sort of discover and that not everybody had access to and so it was like a little club and actually um i think yeah watching little britain felt like being part of a club the pl- club eventually got bigger but the other thing was that bbc3 didn't have that much stuff they didn't have that much content that many shows so they would show eastenders before it got shown on on BBC One, okay. um, but they had us and they had two pints of lager and a packet of crisps, and so they used to just show us and two pints of lager and a packet of crisps again okay. and again <laughs> and again. And when any night you every night you turned on, you saw Little Britain. It's like now on ITV, you turn on ITV, you see Bradley Walsh. Yeah, it's true. You just that's the Bradley Walsh channel, <laughs> and we were like that. We were like if you turn on. Um, you turn on uh, uh, BBC Three, you just see Little Britain. That was it. 
you couldn't escape it and this was before youtube yeah 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 and and uh and not everybody paid for sky tv channels so it was a free to air channel that in this boom of 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 uh people buying freeview boxes and they, oh i know i buy freeview and the box will cost me 40 quid 50 quid but then i won't have to pay any more for any of those channels all right i'll do that or if you just buy a new tv it's got freeview built in and you had four channels now you've got 12 and one of them is showing comedy and that was us mm-hmm. for free without adverts great and people watched it so we got really really lucky and the other thing we got really lucky with was we um our first series of little britain on dvd is the biggest selling tv dvd title in the uk or maybe the biggest selling comedy tv uh, okay dvd title right and and that came out at the boom of dvds which was which what didn't last for that long no it didn't um because by the time we did come fly with me and even the later series of little britain people had stopped paying to watch things so those dvds came out before pirate bay mm. and people downloading illegal torrents to watch things uh, so little britain for some people i don't say it was one of the first and last dvds they bought <laughs> you know yeah, yeah, yeah. also there was a really weird um thing that i was told which was that one of the other reasons D- people stopped buying dvds was that um they only had so much shelf space and people just ran out of space for their dvds and so people could have a couple of hundred dvds yeah. in their on their shelves and then that was it they ran out of space and they yeah, stopped yeah. buying them but there was this moment where everybody was buying dvds and i never thought dvds would be a hit because i thought well I thought they were going to be like laser discs because like laser discs, you couldn't really record on them. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, even when recordable DVDs came out, nobody, not that many people recorded on DVDs. So I didn't think they'd be that popular. I thought they'd be like laser discs. Um, but uh, there was that moment um, where everybody started doing director's commentaries, deleted scenes, exactly. outtakes, and you could put a lot more onto a dvd than you could put on a on a videotape you know in that way and also it wasn't chronological you could go you could put the thing dvd in and then you go i just want to watch that sketch i just want to watch that commentary i just want to do this you didn't have to rewind it Mm. and the picture was better and it didn't degrade with time the way a videotape did and so little britain we just got lucky because people were interested in the office and trying to ape that so we didn't have any competition because of BBC Three and because of DVD, oh, so all those planets aligned, and that was the moment when it happened. For us. Yeah, funny. I, I I was I had those DVDs as well. Mm. <laughs> That's what's yeah. so funny. There you go. Yeah. There you go. So interestingly enough, if your grandfather had been born thirty years earlier, yeah, he wouldn't have had the. He maybe wouldn't have got those movies. No, it's wouldn't true. have done those movies uh, because he would have been too old. He might not have been able to. Um, sort of process what you needed to do mm-hmm. to make films, you know, mentally, like in the same way that I'm 47 now, I'm not that engaged with TikTok. You know, I'm just not that bothered yeah, no, me neither. by it. Like, it's great. 
is brilliant. I, if I go on it, I see brilliant things. But for me, as someone who makes TikTok, I haven't really made that step yet. But if I was if I was 30 years younger and I was 17, I wouldn't probably be thinking about doing the comedy circuit. I probably wouldn't be thinking about trying to get a new TV show. I'd be thinking about my TikTok yeah. account, my Instagram account, maybe my YouTube channel. So it's also, it's just about how old you are and where you are. You know, the fact that your grandfather was an English speaker going to America where they also spoke English yeah. probably made life a lot easier. Um, I mean, he had a lot of things that weren't easy for him. He obviously came from an incredibly deprived background, yeah. had a, a, so much trauma with, with, you know, his father's alcoholism and his mother's terrible mental health issues. Um, you know, he didn't have it easy, but um, he was just the right age and he had something to prove, I guess. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, his talent, just his talent. Wow. And he had such a hunger to educate himself as well, didn't he? Because, yeah. I mean, he probably wouldn't have had that much access to schools, would he? Really? No, no. Well, I mean, he went, he was basically forced to go to school. But I mean, he, yeah. I think, according to my dad, he loved reading. That was his thing. He just loved reading, and he loved reading about everything. So it seems to me that he definitely... I get the impression, because of the way he grew up, that he wanted to get away from it as much as possible. Yeah, he really wanted to better himself. And you yeah. can hear that even in his dialect. Because mm -hmm. he never, ever talks like a cockney. No, well, he did in the beginning, I mean, and then he turns into this old posh guy. <laughs> yeah, but I've, I don't think I've ever heard any any recording of him talking like a cockney ever does it exist that's a good question i have no idea but i know i'd be very I, surprised yeah at some point in his in his career he thought like he must have changed because i don't think he spoke like that his whole life right right especially coming from yeah. london <laughs> this is a question for you yeah your maternal great-grandfather was also one of the most celebrated writers yeah absolutely of, of the 20th century <laughs> i know uh, and what's your relationship like with his work okay so uh i know a long day's journey into the night tonight yeah yeah um when my grandmother married my grandfather they it started off this kind of big turbulent relationship between them uh, so our family actually aren't very much connected on that side of the family but i've managed to I, we've connected with someone on facebook and i'm thinking about maybe interviewing some of them oh you must oh what so so eugene did not approve of una's romance with charlie not at all hated it. and what to the extent that they became estranged yeah 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 wow and she loved her father very very there's, very a, much. there's a movie <laughs> yeah I mean, his whole life, I mean, there's just so much to talk about, you know? I didn't realise that that relationship was never, was it never repaired? Not, not really, no. Uh, I know she got along quite well with her, with her mother, um, but with her father, they, they wrote to each other. We have actually letters that they used to write to each other. Wow. It never really was repaired. Una, don't forget, went out with people like J.D. Salinger. Um, wow. And but he would have been a lot younger. Um, Chatham. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. he wasn't even famous yet, actually, at the time. Um, right, yeah. But she left Salinger to be with my grandfather. <laughs> oh, really? I yeah. didn't know that. And, um, yeah, just... And she and she hung out with people like Truman Capote, uh, for wow. example. And apparently Breakfast at Tiffany's, 
is sort of based on a new several different characters, but she's one of them. From their time, really? they used to hang out in wow. New York. Yeah, it's it's all. I mean, my family history is so rich. It's it's crazy. I, I get startled sometimes. There's just so much I don't know. Um, I don't think people realize how influential he probably was, especially back then. And he, you know, he, oh yeah, he was in Hollywood when there was no Hollywood. He was there at the beginning. Yeah. So uh, you know, creating. Yeah, he was one of the sort of four or five founding fathers of Hollywood, really. Yeah. yeah. But not just of not just of Hollywood and its structure, but just of of movie making, of what of what uh, you know. There, there's there's few, isn't there? There's um, you know, Demille mm-hmm. and is it Eisenstein and Chaplin? You know, there's a there's a few of them around at that time who sort of who sort of set the rules for what films are in terms of even how long they are yeah, yeah. and the, just things like that, just basic things that we don't even think about that they, they, they sort of wrote the language of cinema. It's really yeah. interesting. Oh, absolutely. And you know, he founded United artists, all this mm. stuff. He was an incredible guy. I mean, you lived in LA for a while. Um, seven years yeah seven years did you ever go past or did you ever go in the charlie chaplin studios no i never went in i went past it and i also i remember being really intrigued by uh they were on the market it was it was houses that he'd owned it was these four little houses that were all for sale together do you know what i'm talking about i i'm not sure which one exactly there's i know there's there's lots of buildings that he was in i'm assumed he owned a lot of property Yeah. yeah yeah in la I mean, also, that's the other, you know, that's the other thing, which is, you know, uh, without prying or I, my my sense, my understanding is he was generally quite smart financially. Yeah. In, and, and a lot of those people weren't. And I think I don't think, um, for instance, I don't think Stan Laurel died a very rich man. No, he didn't. Um, and Buster uh, Keaton, neither. Sorry? Buster Keaton, neither. Buster Keaton didn't. Um, and I think uh, obviously his commercial success sort of eclipsed everyone. Yeah. I mean, he probably made more money than everyone else put together. But even <laughs> so, um, you know, especially if you think about the divorces and this, that and the other. Okay. And, and uh, you know, he lived by the sounds of it in, in you know, in very comfortable uh, surroundings. But he still, you know, he still seemed to to sort of, save and be smart financially mm-hmm. you know yeah. and that's that's also an, an interesting thing about him and that that's also probably to do with how little he had at birth that's exactly it understanding the value of it growing up and and what could what what could be achieved with it but also he obviously spent a lot of it on his work as well and i'm always really intrigued to hear how he would uh, shut down productions for weeks to solve a problem yeah, yeah. and i'd just be like wow you know knowing the film industry and and, and <laughs> how could that be afforded how could that be afforded he just didn't um <laughs> so you know amazing to he spent a lot of his money on art but um yeah just 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 the the language of cinema we owe so much to him when uh you agreed to do the interview. I'm, I was kind of thinking, I was like, I, I have no idea how much he's going to know about my grandfather. 
I'm, I'm very pleasantly surprised. <laughs> oh, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. And I, I wrote I wrote that story in my autobiography about showing modern times at the party, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. Have true. you read that story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have. I have. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is uh, you know um, that I you know there, there was a, a in in about 1989, 1990. You know, I was part of the cool kids and and uh, for a moment and. Um, there was a party where everyone was kind of smoking weed and <laughs> snogging each other and getting drunk. And, uh, you know, I came in and, and stopped the party and said, guys, you have to watch this. And I put on um, modern times to show to everybody and, um, people, I mean, I virtually had stuff thrown at me, you know, <laughs> what are you doing? Why are we watching a black and white film? And nobody had the patience or the inclination admittedly, uh, in the middle of a of a party where they're all getting off with each other to watch the film. Uh, it would be a sad story if it weren't for the fact that I obviously then went on to have quite a nice career in comedy. So yeah, yeah, it's yeah. sort of, you know, if you were doing a film of my life, you might start it with that scene. Yeah, that's, that's you know, really funny. Um, uh, if I hadn't gone on to become a comedian, it, I wouldn't be telling you this story because <laughs> it's obviously... Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm a fan, and and, um, and I love revisiting his work again every few years mm -hmm. as I get older, as I can understand more about it, and as I as I get myself more experience. You know, I I, I did a series called Pompidou, which um, was sort of done in gibberish, and and I co-directed it, and mm -hmm. so you know, faced with those challenges, to then go back and and have a whole new appreciation of your grandfather's work because I was more aware of the challenges you face as a director in doing visual comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 and the fact that so many of his effects were done in camera, whereas today they would be CGI. Exactly. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, and how he played around a lot with speeds as well, camera speeds and, and stuff like that. It was really, he was really at the forefront of technology. Yeah. Yeah, 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 he really was. He really was. And you'd find, I mean, you know, Spielberg would tell you that. I mean, the greatest directors of our time will tell you that he was one of the greatest directors of his time. Mm. I mean, there's there's no there's no doubt about that. So so so, you know, comedy fans will love watching his performances, but but film students will marvel at his directorial uh, capabilities. I think. And that, you know, in a weird way, comedy fashions change. And like I say, some people won't find his films as accessible now as obviously in his heyday. The, 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 they can be seen as overly sentimental and mawkish at times um, and fashions change. Mm -hmm. But actually where, where the comedy may date his, his, his sort of, craft as a filmmaker i think will all and, and as a pioneer will always be uh, admired always because mm. he was there at the very beginning of the medium you're gonna you're gonna say yeah yeah sure i'll come visit the museum but i'm serious you need to come visit the i would museum. love to yeah. i would love to that yeah. would be a, a real treat thank it, you yeah yeah it's uh it's really amazing and you get to see i mean it, it's pretty much left untouched how it was and then there's one bit where they it's called the studio you go in and it's got lots of old film sets that shows how everything was done but it gets wow. into his life quite a lot it's quite cool wow yeah well that would be that would be a, a treat thank you <laughs> no Matt thank Lucas I can't thank you enough for coming on no it's my great pleasure thank you for having me
Take it easy. All right. Bye-bye. See you again. Bye-bye.